If you dream of the sea, you will have something you were hoping for. If you dream of drinking the whole sea, your life will be long. If you dream of crossing the sea, you will gain what belongs to your enemy, just as the children of Israel crossed the sea and gained what belonged to Pharaoh. If you dream of urinating in the sea, you will persist in your mistakes. If you dream of seeing the sea from a distance, you will experience difficulty. If you dream of standing on the sea, you will receive from the authorities something you did not seek. If you dream of entering the sea, then leaving it, you will receive from the authorities a prize, and your cares will leave you. If you dream of swimming in the sea, then leaving it, and you are sick, God will cure you, and if you were distressed, God will give you relief. If you dream of passing from one side of the sea to the other, you will pass from anguish to safety. If you dream of drowning in the sea, you will be overcome with suffering, particularly if the water is opaque or if mud has swelled up from its depths. If you dream of swimming in the sea, you will find a way out of your situation. If you dream of swimming out of the sea, your situation will not end soon. If you dream of swimming out so far you are no longer seen, you will be lost. If you dream of dying in the sea, you will die a martyr. If you dream of drowning in the sea, rising and falling in the water but not dying, you will be overcome by the state of the world. If you dream of diving for pearls in the sea, you are seeking money or something like it, and you will gain it in proportion to the pearls you find. If you dream of scooping water from the sea and filling a boat with it, you will have a boy who will live long. If you dream of taking water from the sea and drinking it, you will have money or knowledge in proportion to the water you drink, and if the water is dark, you will be afraid. If you dream of washing in the sea and you are afraid, you will be delivered from fear, and if you are in prison, you will be released. The sea may signify hell. If you dream of someone in the sea and that person is dead, they are in hell, and if that person is sick, they will get worse, and if you see them drown, their sickness will kill them. Some say that walking on water signifies something hidden becoming manifest. Some say it signifies danger. Dreaming of the sea may signify the end of life and contact with the unseen world. The sea may signify travel or war. Fresh water is faith, salt water, unbelief. The sea may signify rain. It may signify there is no God but God. It may signify anxiety or relief from anxiety. It may signify the father and mother, or a man and a woman with bad morals, or people with schemes. It may signify a prison for animals, or a craft without limits, or a city without walls. It may signify leaving a community. If you dream of the sea rising and rain was needed, it will rain. Now that was Yasmin Seal uh, reading for us from uh, the dream manual of Abdel Ghani al-Nabulsi, who lived in Damascus from 1641 to 1731. And this is the Bulak podcast coming to you from Istanbul this time, and also, as usual, from Aman Jordan with Ursula Lindsay. Hello, Ursula. Hello. And, my, and myself in Rabat, Morocco. So this is episode 61, and our guest today is Yasmin Seal. Thank you so very much for being here, Yasmin. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And for those of you who don't know Yasmin yet, and you should, she was born into a literary family, the grandniece of Nizar Qabani, the widely beloved Syrian poet, and also apparently a descendant of the aforementioned Abdel Ghani al-Nabulsi, who uh, lived in Damascus, a scholar, a critic, and author of this beautiful book on dreams. Um, although she was French educated, she went to Oxford to study Arabic and was working on her PhD when the Thousand and One Nights scholar Paulo Horta came to London looking for someone who could translate both from French and Arabic. And somehow this led her to her first translated book, Aladdin, which came out from W.W. W. Norton in 2018. Uh, a fresh translation of the text from Antoine Galland. Um, she is a 
widely admired poet and translator of poetry. She has crafted a beautifully, beautiful and critically important translation of Badr Shekhar Sayyab's Rain Song, which was published in uh, 2018, as well as many other poetic translations. She's also a visual artist, which we can talk about, and is currently at work on a fresh translation of Thousand and One Nights. I'll just add here, Yasmin, we are very excited to have you on, and we've been looking forward to this episode basically since the beginning of the fall, since you first agreed um, to talk with us. So uh, it's it's really a pleasure to be talking with you today. Thank you both so much, and thank you, Marcia, for that uh, dream biography. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I toned it down, so... (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there's there's Marcia would would have liked to say say mu- many more uh, lovely and all true things about you and your and your work, um, but I'm going to pick up. Uh, Marcia just mentioned that you are working on a new translation of the Thousand and One Nights, which strikes me as a wonderful and and daunting thing to be to be doing to be wading into this. Um, ocean of stories. Uh, and so maybe we could start there. Uh, it, you know, in a way, I think everyone has some familiarity with the Knights uh, because they have sort of spread themselves into so many parts of our of our culture. And at the same time, uh, sometimes we, we know them less than we think. So uh, perhaps you could just um, talk a bit about uh, what the Thousand and Knights are um in, introduce them uh, to us again um i will try uh, <laughs> i know yeah it is wonderful and daunting as you say um and it's difficult to say what the knights are um and i feel like the more i learn about them the the less i'm able to answer that question um but what we can say is that the knights are um I almost want to end that sentence there. The knights are <laughs> in the sense that they really are this multiple thing, and it can be a bit misleading to talk about it as a book or as a work, um, because I think of it more as a kind of tradition of storytelling. Um, it's a it's a loose collection of stories, but uh, it doesn't really correspond to any definitions we have about what a book is. Uh, it doesn't have uh, an author, you know, there are no authors whose names we know. Um, we're not sure when it began, really. Um, the earliest text in Arabic that we have is already a, a translation of an earlier work uh, from Persian, which probably itself um, adapted material from from other cultures. Um, so there's no original uh, that we know. There's no author. There's no end. It doesn't really end. It's this kind of open-ended collection. Um, but uh, we know that it came into Arabic around the ninth century, um, and there is a very old core of stories from that time uh, that is held together by a frame story, which is the very well-known story of uh, a woman called Shahrazad who is telling uh, stories to uh, the man she has married, who is a kind of uh, murderous, misogynistic king who has decided to uh, kill every woman in his kingdom um, so as never to be betrayed by a woman. And Shahrazad, who is the daughter of this king's vizier, has volunteered to marry him um, with a, a strategy to end this massacre. Um, and the, the ruse involves telling stories and ending on a kind of cliffhanger every night um, so that the king will want to hear the rest of it the following night. Um, so that's the the sort of general organizing principle. It's the device that holds together all of the stories that she tells. Um, but no one can really agree on how many stories there are. Uh, there has been a kind of proliferation of stories ever since the very earliest. So it has a strange status because... There was a perception in Europe for a long time, and maybe even today, that it is the most famous Arabic work or the greatest Arabic work, Um, whereas for a long time, 
many Arabs didn't think of it as a great text and maybe didn't even think of it as an Arabic text. Um, so it has this unique kind of slipperiness as a as a as an object. Um, uh, and I think that's why it's prompted so many artistic and literary responses. It seems to invite response and play rather than uh, deference. Um, yeah, you had this wonderful talk with Marina Warner and now I um, you're going to have Richard. Richard Van Leeuwen. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> where you talked about, or maybe Marina talked about, the sort of three-dimensionality of the text, how it is sort of endlessly leaping out of the page. And I, I, I did wonder, so you have this series of artworks that I think you started doing in um, last year in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have this kind of performance of the night spot, which seems to have been uh, very quiet lately. And I'm very sad about that. <laughs> and and all these sort of performative things around your translation project. And I wondered what it is about the nights that, that invites that. Oh, it's a good question. You know, I think... Um... There was, it reminds me of a lovely essay that Mazen Ma'aruf wrote um, about a year ago, I think, in Granta. Uh, Granta have this series where they get writers to talk about uh, a book that they love uh, or the best book of a particular year. And he wrote an essay about the nights and said it was his favorite book of any year. <laughs> and it was this lovely piece by a, a contemporary writer, you know, describing what the appeal is um, for someone who is drawn to experimentation in writing. It is a really fascinating text. I think you had a line about how it was almost automatic writing um, and that it's completely receptive um, to adventure and play. Um, and I feel that too when I, when I work on it, um, that it's, it's this very pliable text. You know, it's always changing. Um, uh, there's something very modern about it, even maybe postmodern, because... It, it disrupts a lot of received ideas about what a book is and what literature is. Um, and uh, so rather than a, than a work, I think of it almost as a, a channel or a kind of conduit for all these different uh, imaginative traditions that it has borrowed from, you know, Indian and Greek and Hebrew and pre-Islamic influences, as well as... Um, maybe most importantly, Persian. Um, but then also kind of on the other side, it has also massively influenced um, an extraordinary amount of literature, um, and particularly European literature. Um, you know, the development of whole genres in, in Europe, I think, can be uh, directly uh, traced to the influence of the first translations of the knights, um, the development of the fairy tale, uh, in the 18th century, and even of the novel. I mean, many, many 19th century and 20th century novelists um, explicitly described what they were doing as responses to the knights. Um, I think Dickens cites the knights more than any other work of literature. Um, Balzac and Stendhal and all, all these kind of novelists with these kind of epic projects saw themselves as, as writing um, the knights for the West. Um, so it always has... Um, invited uh, continuation. I think maybe because it's open-ended, uh, you could think of all these responses as attempts to write, you know, the thousand and second night. Um, there's this desire to, to keep it going um, and a sense that it has to change in order to, to survive and to keep going. Um, and, uh, and of course, all the translators who've worked on this text have also been part of this tradition of changing and adapting I mean, the whole history of the knights in, in French and in English has been one of um, adaptation, sometimes to the point of fraudulence. Um, and, and there's been a huge amount of uh, erasure and misrepresentation and um, adaptation to suit the tastes of particular readers. Um, almost, almost all of the translators who've, who've worked on it until, until recently, you know, until the 20th century, um, have been have been part of this process um so you know now that i sorry i'll just take that again um 
as a as a translator now, my task is to give uh, an accurate account of this text. Um, you know, I, it, it is not part of my brief to alter the text or to adapt it. Um, but I do still feel this, uh, this urge or this kind of interest in um, manipulating the text or responding to it in some creative way. Um, and I think both the, the bot and the, the artworks have come out of that um, impulse to play, really, with it. Um, Right, it's sort of an overflow, uh, I guess. So, so you don't manipulate the text. Yeah. But so then, what what is your role? Uh, what do you want your translation to be that other English language translations have not been? Well, when you think about the history of the translations, um, I mean, the first translation, which was Antoine Galland's in the eighteenth century, uh, that was really the thing that made the knights into a global phenomenon. Um, it was unbelievably influential. It went through dozens of editions. Um, it was translated in turn into many, many languages um, in the 18th and 19th centuries, um, all over the world, really, from you know Icelandic to Tamil to Portuguese, Japanese. It really went everywhere. Um, and that continued to be the prototype, even after uh, there had been Arabic editions of the Knights. Um, Galland's translation continued to be used as a kind of original. Um, and yet Galland's translation was um, full of adaptation, as I said. It was really altered to suit the tastes of the French court of Louis XIV. Um, and then the subsequent uh, English translators also, um, to, to some degree, um, altered and, and cut the text to suit their own concerns um, or the concerns of their public. So Edward Lane, who was translating in the 1840s, um, removed all of the sex because uh, <laughs> his audience were um, kind of families. Um, so he tried to make it more kind of friendly to children. Um, Richard Burton, on the other hand, uh, kind of added a lot of sex that wasn't there and also a lot of other things, um, his own kind of prejudices and his own obsessions. Um, uh, and yet something that those 19th century translations really tried to do was uh, produce um, kind of literary artifacts. They were quite concerned with trying to render the style or trying to invent a new style for these texts. Um, so although they're full of problems, you know, very kind of obvious problems, they are, um, there's something about the language that is often uh, kind of beguiling um, and, and then there was a sort of sharp departure from that in the in the late twentieth century. There are two there were two uh, translations of the Knights uh, recently. One in nineteen ninety by Hussein Haddawi, um, uh, who who published uh, a translation of the the core stories, so the stories that um, appear in the earliest uh, manuscript of the Knights, which was produced in the fifteenth century. Um, and then there was a translation more recently by Mar Malcolm Lyons, um, who translated from, uh, I think, the Calcutta II manuscript, which is a more extensive collection of stories. Um, but in both cases, you know, those translations were done by uh, academics into relatively straightforward prose. And in both cases, they explicitly say that they are not trying to render the stylistic effects of the original um, so it's uh, it's really just a kind of straightforward prose account of of the stories, um, and there hasn't really been an attempt to do both, to give a sort of accurate, uh, careful kind of scholarly account of what is in these stories, but also to try and um, produce a text that sustains close reading and that is uh, pleasurable to read and has. Uh, and, and thinks about style and form as much as content. Um, so that's, I felt like there was room for a translation that tries to do, uh, at least tries to do all of those things. Well, at least I'll tell you where I'm at now in the, in the process. I'm, I'm due to, uh, to submit the complete nights in 2023. Um, and what I'm, I've just finished working on now is a, uh, selection of stories from the nights that will be out at the end of uh, next year. So in fall 2021, um, Norton will publish the annotated edition of The Knights, which will have um, 
I think, 20 uh, translations, 20 stories. Okay, so we'll get the uh, a first installment uh, next year. Exactly, yeah. Okay. And sorry, I just wanted to go back a little bit to what, when you were talking about where this translation stands in relation to previous ones and this, you know, your, your goal, which is to be both uh, in some sense more faithful perhaps to the original, but also um, to reflect its literary qualities more. Um, and I, I, I find this question of like the authenticity or the accuracy of the nights complicated, right? Because um, obviously translators did take a lot of perhaps unwarranted liberties, but there's something about the stories that seems to almost encourage that. Mm. And I think that is what makes it, them so appealing uh, is that they somehow, you know, presumably they were being changed and added to and adapted to their audience uh, even before they were translated into European languages. I mean, presumably that that was sort of the spirit in which they were yes, often um, told. Absolutely. And, and uh, it's really, uh, when you think of the story of the Knights, it, it really is a story of translation all the way down, you know, as far back as you go. Uh, every version of it is um, represents a change from what came before. Um, so I think you're completely right that um, it doesn't really make much sense to want authenticity um, from a translation of this text, uh, or even completeness, um, you know, because it's really not clear what that would mean. Um, I think what I would like to try and do is give an account of um, the way this text has been formed uh, almost archaeologically through time. You know, I get this feeling sometimes when I look at the text that you can almost look through it at a thousand years of history. You know, it's it's this work that's been built up in layers. Um, so rather than try and flatten it out, I would like to try and give some sense of the, the kind of texture of it over time. Um, and I'm not yet sure how, how I will do that. Um, I mean, you know, obviously there are all these kind of chronological layers. You know, there is a core of stories that is very ancient. That's probably ninth, tenth century. Um, there are stories that were kind of added later in the medieval period. There are stories that came into the knights um, in French, uh, the so-called orphan stories, um, of which Aladdin is maybe the most famous, that were uh, introduced into the knights by Galland. And for a long time, it was believed that he had just sort of made them up to kind of bulk up his, his translation. And now we know that he was told these stories by um, Hannah Diab, who was a, a young man from Aleppo, um, about whom we know a lot more now, um, because uh, he wrote an extraordinary uh, memoir of his travels through the Mediterranean and Europe, which is um, uh, about to come out in Elias Mohanna's translation, um, I think in the next few months, um, which is very exciting because, you know, this person was really a, an absolutely central figure in the in the history of the Knights, um, who was never named by Galland and never acknowledged. So it's... Um, Isn't he mentioned in Galland's memoirs in some way? He's mentioned in Galland's diary. In diary, okay. Um, which he didn't intend for publication. But, uh, you know, in publishing the, the stories that he was told by, by Hannah, uh, he never he never acknowledged that he had this source. Um, so it's uh, fascinating to think of these stories as, in some way, Franco-Arab collaborations, um, because that that really is the story of the knights in general. You know, not that they are Franco-Arab, but that they are um, completely made of mixture. They're they're collaborative things. Um, and will go on being so, I think. They completely resist the desire for, for purity or for pinning the text down to one tradition or one language. Um, and uh, I, I like what you said, Ursula, about um, your, I think you're almost suggesting that I should sort of give myself license to continue <laughs> to adapt this text. And I did think of um, maybe adding one story um, 
you know, a story from today or a story set in Istanbul or something um, as a way of, of continuing the chain. Oh, I love that idea. I love that. Do you think WW Norton would go for that? Well, if they, if they, uh, it might be a challenge, you know, to, to spot it. <laughs> I, I, remember, I think the, the story of the Knights is so fun. Like the whole, the story of all the different translators, the stories of, you know, uh, uh, the ways in which they like completely, you know, twisted it to their own personality and their own tastes and their own circumstances, uh, the deceptions, the fake versions, like it's a great in and of itself, the story of the stories I find so interesting. I totally and, agree. Um, I, I was just remembering what, what I was thinking about when did I first read them? And I, I honestly can't remember, but the first time that I sort of became aware actually of, you know, a lot of the, the history of them and, and where they come from was because more than 10 years ago in Cairo, when I was a journalist there, there was this attempt to censor, oh. <laughs> um, there was a Gamal al-Khitani, the Egyptian writer, took over a like national um, literary pub publication. And one of the first things he did was put out a, a cheap issue of the Thousand and One Nights, you know, in these like, you know, publicly subsidized uh, volumes. And he was sued by, I think, you know, Islamist connected lawyers who you mentioned purity, who saw these uh, as impure in a different way, like because there's, you know, sex and you know crimes and all sorts of you know uh elements uh sort of impolite and 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 impure and bad behavior uh so they sued him over this uh you know because they consider this to be completely non-literary and actually sort of like immoral work and in the course of writing this article about that that's when i sort of like you know, got some scholarly editions of them and read the introductions and read some stories and uh, but also for the first time got a sense of how how they had traveled and how much and 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 how many versions there were yeah. and, and all these sorts of things. You know, there's a whole history of this in Egypt because the, the first edition of the Knights in an Arab country was in was in Cairo, was in Bulak, in fact. Right. <laughs> I knew that. Um, yeah. And that is the name that we still give, you know, to this, um, the first edition. And it was reprinted many times in Cairo, in Beirut, but it was often censored. So often the printed version people were reading was this kind of badlerized version. And then I think in the 80s, there was the first attempt to to print a, a kind of unexpurgated edition. And it caused a kind of scandal when people kind of realized um you know how much sex and so on all these stories actually involve um so there's been this whole history of kind of uh censoring and adding and censoring and adding and revealing um right and i think before that if i'm if i'm not mistaken you know literati of previous centuries write about you know scorning it in a different way as you know genre literature that is not sort of proper right to the interests of of somebody who's a real literateur. Right. Yeah. I mean, compared to so much Arabic literature, um, you know, of the classical period, it's, it's not particularly impressive. <laughs> I mean, the language is, uh, is not very highly worked. Um, but I find that interesting also, you know, that it almost has the cadence of speech. You can almost feel like you hear people kind of telling these stories behind the text. Um, and that's another thing I, I was kind of interested in trying to think about to produce a, a text that is, you know, a literary work, but also that that might kind of have moments of um, speech or feel like it it might be sung or you know that it kind of slips into these other registers. Right. Yeah. I. I mean, I've had scholars tell me to make sure you write that these were not uh, oral stories that were they they were written stories. Right. But that there is that um, that element of yes, they were written, but they were also they were probably they were meant written to be like performed. they were being told. Right. So I've I've heard a lot being made of the fact that this is the first translation of the Knights, uh, parenthetically into English, uh, by a woman. Right. And I I I loved what you said to Veronica in World Literature Today about how there have been many 
translations by women, like you mentioned Asya Jabbar's, Rashida Madani, Dunya Mikhail. Many women have taken this and adapted it into their own work. But it, I mean, is there anything you think to this? Um, you, as a woman, you now see that. I don't know. I mean, it kind of depends on how you think about Shahrazad. I think you know there is this kind of um, widespread way of thinking about who who Shahrazad is. You know what she represents, which is that she's she is a woman who is resisting um, a sort of misogynistic tyranny, and that is uh, clearly what's going on, and has been a very important reading, I think, and has been important to to many feminists. Um, you know, to sort of reclaim her as a kind of feminist figure. Um, but if you look at how she's described in the text, um, you know, we know very little about her as a woman. She's almost not uh, introduced as a, as, a, as a physical person, um, which is unusual because, in fact, a lot of women in the nights are described in terms of their beauty. You know, they are, there is this kind of moment where they're compared to the moon and so on. Shahrazad doesn't get that treatment. Um, what we know about her is almost entirely internal. You know, we know about her her personal qualities, and most importantly, we know about what she's read. She's this kind of library. Um, so I, I think of her sometimes as more of a concept than a character. She's almost like this principle of creation that's not to do with um, self-expression, but is actually to do with channeling and recombining what you've read into new stories. Um, and that's, I think that's the, the kind of aspect of it that excites me more um, because that is the whole history of the knights, you know, um, it is just to do with recombining previous stories in this kind of endless chain. So you brought a, a text that you were going to read for, to, for this. Um, could you introduce it to us just a bit? Yes. Um, I'm just trying to find it. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are. This is a short passage from... Uh, one of the stories embedded in the cycle of the porter and the three women of Baghdad, um, which I think is my favorite story in the nights. Um, and this is a section about a young woman who's the daughter of a king who has been put under a spell by a jinn. Um, and she is trying to liberate herself by fighting this jinn. Um, so it's a little, little guide on how to fight a jinn. The king's daughter took a knife engraved with Hebrew letters, drew with it a circle in the middle of the hall, and in it she carved names in Kufic script and talismanic charms and uttered solemn words, and soon the world was dark and seemed to close in on our heads, and we saw the jinn appear in the guise of a lion the size of a bull, and we were terrified. The girl said, Get away, you dog. Traitor, said the jinn, you have broken the oath. Did we not pledge that neither of us would cross the other? What is a pledge, she said, to a creep like you? Then take what you deserve, he said, and pounced on her with open mouth. But she was quick, and from her head she plucked a hair and waved it muttering around the air, and the hair changed to a blade which struck the lion, slicing it in half. But as the halves went flying, the head changed to a scorpion and the girl became a snake and they were locked in battle for an age. Then Scorpion became Vulture, and the girl changed to an eagle, hunted it, and they were gone a while, until the ground was split and there emerged a cat, irregularly white and black, who snarled and snapped and growled. The girl became a wolf, and they fought a bitter battle in the palace. And when the cat was overcome, it gave a howl and turned into a worm and crept into a pomegranate lying by the pool. The pomegranate swelled to watermelon size, flew into the air and threw itself onto the marble floor, breaking to pieces. All the seeds were scattered and the wolf, changed to a rooster, descended on the seeds and pecked them all, except for one which lay concealed at the pool's edge. The rooster crowed and flapped its wings and motioned with its beak as if to ask if any seeds remained and cried so loud the palace seemed to shake. Then the rooster turned and chanced to see the seed at the pool's edge and dived. The seed rolled into the water and, changed to a fish, swam to the bottom. 
The rooster, now a larger fish, plunged after it, and for a long time they vanished. Then we heard shrieks which made us shake, and the jinn appeared as a flame of fire, casting fire from his mouth and from his eyes and nostrils, fire and sparks, followed by the girl, changed to a blaze. They clashed until their fires enfolded them, and thick smoke filled the hall, and we were choking, fearing death by fire, and sure the end was near. And as the flames grew fiercer, we said, there is no power and no strength except in God. Wow. So I would love to see that. So you read it and then there's like an animation going on in the foreground of all these changes happening. I love that. And I love that it's, they just become these kind of flames at the end fighting. Yeah. There's something kind of hot about it. Um, yeah, you, you know, on this question of the figure of Shahrazad and the sort of gender dynamics, I guess, in the nights, I have to say every time I reread it, the like extreme male paranoia and misogyny of the opening and the the sort of ridiculous, like terror of of female betrayal, like taken to like, you know, put in these terms that are like so exaggerated that they're, they, they, it almost, I find it funny every time, you know, the King scouring the earth for like, is there, is there anyone more betrayed than me? And, you know, the, the, the woman who does manage despite all obstacles, you know, constantly to, to, to betray her, her, her lover. Um, there's 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 something the degree of that is i also find the frame tale very funny it's kind of like pulp it's a pulp fiction um that has literary pretensions (laughs) well i was just thinking about you know i set up this distinction between uh thinking of shahrazad as a woman and thinking of her as a kind of voice or a channel you know um but you've just made me think that there might be um something very powerful about the fact that she is this voice um because what the king has done as you say in the frame tale is reduce her to a kind of object you know to control and to punish um and through her voice uh through this kind of voice that can never be stopped she has affirmed her existence you know beyond the body she's not she's a voice um she's a you know a body reduced to a voice which is um, quite a powerful fantasy, I think. Um, And then, of course, she involves her sister. You know, her sister is also present every night as she tells these stories. So she's created a chain of transmission and and solidarity um, between women. Yeah, interesting. I I never thought of it as, you know, a sned chain, you know, of... uh... Right, yeah. And also when you think of all the women who've who've participated in transmitting these stories, you know, by telling them or by singing them, or um, uh, there was this great uh, uh, sort of serial of the nights on Egyptian radio for a while where Zuzu Nabil was the voice of Shahrazad. You know, there are all these women who've been kind of part of the transmission of these stories, um, which is why I'm always a bit uncomfortable when I'm described as, you know, the first woman, because it's really not true, or it's only true in this very kind of limited sense that ends up being a bit meaningless. So also in this interview with Veronica, <laughs> you you mentioned all sorts of other things, the Mu'alaqat, Hay ibn Yaqzan, and I started to imagine you actually retranslating all of <laughs> the classical canon, like maybe, you know, very in a Shahrazadian way, we lock you up and make you translate a new class. Okay, forget that. Never mind. But anyway, <laughs> one project. <laughs> Interesting fantasy. <laughs> You one thing you have worked on translating is is the dream manual of Abdul Ghanian Nabulsi, who okay, so you mentioned that he is your ancestor, which fascinated me, and then you didn't say anything more about that. Can you just explain that just briefly? Well, I don't really know, you know, exactly how um he's talk about women being the transmitters. He's on my mother's 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 side, he's like that line. Um but this was a while ago. I mean, this was 17th, 18th century. In fact, a descendant of his um, in the late 18th century wrote a biography of him 
um, which which told all these stories about his um, his relationships with his students and his kind of the miracles he performed. I mean, he was an extraordinary figure. He was one of the leading intellectuals of his age, um, but also he was a, a saint. He was, you know, one of the kind of important early modern saints in the Arab world, um, and was almost uh, unbelievably prolific. Um, he wrote something like 250 works um, on uh, subjects from Sufism to uh, the benefits of smoking. He was a great smoker <laughs> and drinker of coffee. Uh, he lived to be 90 um, and smoked all the way through. Uh, he wrote about agriculture. He wrote about poetry. He wrote about Islamic law. Um and uh, and was a great traveler as well. So he he traveled uh, very extensively through the Muslim world um, to Istanbul and Egypt and Lebanon, Palestine, uh, as far as Libya, I think, and wrote descriptions of all these places um, that are kind of valuable accounts of of um, uh, these these areas. Um, and one of the things he wrote was this uh, dictionary of dreams. It's a kind of um, it's a work of dream, dream interpretation that uh, is part of a tradition uh, of sort of Islamic dream interpretation. Um, but I find it, I find it fascinating because it also tells us a lot about real life. Um, I think because dreams, of course, you know, tell us a lot about the anxieties and the desires about you know of the person of the waking life. Um, and you know there is this kind of Islamic tradition uh, that sees dreams as um, vehicles of of transcendental knowledge. So you know dreams are almost a part of prophecy, or, or might be understood understood as a continuation of prophetic teaching. Um, there's a famous hadith which says that if you dream of the to dream of the prophet is equal to seeing him physically. Um, so that you know if you dream of the prophet, you are in some sense receiving direct prophetic guidance um which is an incredibly kind of radical idea when you think about it for the dreams of ordinary people to be invested with this kind of authority um so he talks a lot about you know what it means to see not just the prophet muhammad but all these other prophets you know if you see elias this is what it means and if you see abraham doing this this is what's going on um but the dictionary is mostly not that it's mostly not about religious figures it's mostly about um ordinary objects so it's like the jug or the carrot or the horse you know and if you see all these things um this is what it might mean um but what i love about it is is how contradictory it is it doesn't say you know if you dream of the sea it means this as you as you heard in the bit that i that i read which was the entry uh for the sea it's um there's so many competing contradictory ways of reading it that it, it, it sort of almost makes the, the idea that it is a guide to interpretation, um, redundant or at least kind of, uh, sort of ironic or something or what kind of questions the whole exercise. Um, and it ends up just telling us a lot about, um, the kinds of people who might be dreaming these dreams. And what they might yeah, find I, about. I thought it was so, 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 you know, these in, in our sort of contemporary times, there's sort of these common dreams, right? You dream of you have an exam, but you can't find the exam room, or you dream of losing your baby, or you dream of you. Know, so there are sort of dreams that people talk about commonly having, right? Um, uh, being chased, but being un- unable to move. Were there dreams that you? could see that were that were common in this period or a dream that we wouldn't have now i mean i don't know how many people dream of you know abraham or elijah <laughs> nowadays right but um but that was this interesting thing you know that it was really part of your spiritual practice to dream um and that it was a very important source of guidance um and I, I sort of want to draw a connection between that and, um, you know, the, the work I've been doing with the knights, that there's this kind of almost like an unconscious running th- running beneath the text that um, that you might excavate by reading the text in different ways or paying attention to aspects of it. Um, 
I mean, in a way, that's what the bot does. <laughs> you know, the, right. This bot that I've made, which is um, just to explain to people who don't know, it's a it's a bot. It's a it's an account on Twitter which tweets um, snippets from uh, my my translation of the nights. Um, but I, I found that by extracting these these uh, excerpts and just kind of running letting them run wild you know letting them have this kind of independent life free of their context they acquired this different kind of um status or something they became a a couple of people told me that they began to think of them like tarot or like um right yes kind of instructions for their day or something um i found that kind of interesting that there are these bits of the text that you know if you remove them from their context take on almost a kind of I don't, I don't want to say spiritual, but, you know, this kind of other status. Oh, right, like certainly prediction poetic, astrology, right. you know. And and certainly a, a poetic, yes. a, a different kind of quality, which is which is similar, is something that you do in a lot of the art that you've created out of uh, this edition of the Nights where you've been taking pages, because there too often you isolate just a few lines or words out of a whole page and it creates a new sentence or a new set of associations between words. Yeah. That was also a way of responding to, um, the, the sort of vexed history of translations of the nights in English, um, which is really a history of misrepresentation. Um, so the, the translation I've been working with to make these visual pieces is Edward Lane's translation. Um, who was a great eraser himself. I mean, he he erased, you know, all of the erotic content, uh, the poems, um, you know, anything that he felt was not kind of suited to his audience, he got rid of. Um, and, uh, you know, so I was aware of this kind of, um, almost like a sort of uh, violence he'd done to the text, or um, at least these kind of liberties that he'd taken. Um, and I'm also you know, aware of the the place of the knights within a wider history of um, Orientalism, you know, how the knights became this kind of foundational object in the construction of uh, the Arab world as a kind of strange other, Um, you know, so I was aware of all these things. And at the same time, there were things in Lane's language and in his work that I still found beautiful and and valuable. and that ambivalence was something that I was interested in exploring. Um, and I found it difficult to explore in writing. Um, you know, I want to be, I am sort of committed to uh, the kind of critique of Orientalism. And at the same time, you know, there is plenty in, in this work that I find interesting and, and sort of beautiful. Um, and I found that visual techniques allowed me to um, explore that ambivalence you know, there's something very uh, immediate and efficient about cutting up a text. Um, you know, it's a very kind of efficient form of critique, <laughs> <laughs> just painting over it. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, by letting bits of the text shine through, um, it is also a kind of homage to to the language or to the text, um, but it turns it into something else. Um, so I thought of it as this kind of double gesture of both um, you know, critique and dissent, but also uh, homage to to this odd predecessor. And you talked about it as you you founded at a cafe where they had books, old books yeah. on the shelf. Yeah, I and you just asked them, "Can I take this home and <laughs> and break it?" Um, I didn't ask them if I could break it. <laughs> um, yeah, it was this completely fortuitous thing. And I didn't, you know, I didn't set out to deface it. I, it's something that kind of happened gradually. Um, it was just a sort of insomniac project to begin with. Um, but uh, but it's led to some interesting things, you know. I, I, think of, um, I think of them as these poems kind of buried in the text. Interesting. So ha- you also write poetry yourself once in a while <laughs> once in a while <laughs> you mustn't tell anyone. Um, but you recently won well, this poetry I'm, I'm prize a, i'm afraid we're about to out you completely that. yeah that was a big surprise um 
a really lovely, lovely surprise. Um, but I am very glad that you mentioned it because this is my chance to uh, thank you on air for uh, <laughs> for inspiring it because um, this was a, a, a poem. The idea of it came to me uh, when you, Marcia, asked, um, I think you asked Twitter whether uh, what what people, you asked for translations of the uh, the Arabic phrase, Ashar Diwan al-Arab, which is this kind of ancient piece of wisdom. Um, I don't know actually what the origin is, if it's been attributed to anyone, but it's this kind of, um, you know, very widespread saying about the place of, of poetry within Arab culture um, that, um, you know, you got a lot of kind of... Uh, <laughs> very uh, very thoughtful and and accurate responses and i think i just replied something facetious um you know completely misunderstanding the the arabic phrase or or thinking about how you could translate it in a way that um thought about other meanings of those words other meanings of the word shared and other meanings of the word diwan um and uh and that led to this idea of a poem that would be composed of alternative translations of that phrase um, because it seems to me that it's a phrase that has become slightly emptied of meaning you know it's a phrase that insists on the importance of poetry to Arab society and you know I'm not sure that is really the case anymore um, I'm not sure how many contemporary poets feel themselves to be central to society um, so I, I kind of like this idea of this bit of of wisdom that's been kind of worn down and rubbed away um, and of creating kind of slightly absurd alternative uh, translations for it. Yeah. And so your act of poetry is also an act of translation. Right. Yeah. Well, so we, uh, yes. So please, could you read, read it for us? Conventional wisdom, Arabic saying translated 20 ways. Poetry is the record of the Arabs. The art of poetry is Arabs collected. Good poetry is a list of Arabs. To speak in verse is to remain in Arab memory. To surpass another poet is the Arab odyssey. Knowledge is the Arab living room. Feeling is what Arabs call the office. Falsehood is the Arab court of justice. Noticing is the Arab account book. Reckoning is the Arab reckoning. Being awake is where Arabs rest their heads. Being aware is how Arabs anthologize. Plants are Arabs immortalized. Trees are the Arab board of advisors. Vegetation is the Arab Chesterfield. Saffron is, for Arabs, stray poems gathered. Fur is the Arab sofa. What grows on the body is the Arab saga. Bristles are a gathering of Arabs. Hair is the Arab archive. (laughs) 